Hi, I'm Sakrat Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 22nd episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to the areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Ameh Anwar, who is an advocate of civil liberties with a career dedicated to defending the human rights of the vulnerable, where he has instructed in some of Scotland's highest profile cases, including the one of Surajit Singh Shokar, which we discuss today. The racial murder of Surajit Singh Shokar became one of Scotland's most famous cases for a number of reasons, and it was only after a long 17-year campaign that justice was achieved, thanks to the legal advocacy work of Ame Anwar. And so it's an honour to speak with him today about this case, where he's able to share his story, the legal proceedings, and more. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for sick children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurumukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast to learn more about the case of Sarjeet Singh Shokar with Ame Anwar. Who is Ame Anwar? I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm described as a leading lawyer in Scotland. I've been a campaigning lawyer now for some 21 years. Um, I was brought up in Liverpool. I came to Glasgow in 1986 to study. Um, came to Glasgow University. I was supposed to go into engineering. Dream was to go in the Royal Air Force. Because of um, I became involved in student politics. And in uh, because of something that happened um, with regards to the police, it changed the whole course of my life. Um, so I suppose it's, it's, it's a, everybody has in their lives certain things that happen that sort of, you know, it's that sliding doors moment where you think, well, if, if it, something had hadn't happened, you might have gone this direction. But November 1991, something that will always um, stay with me is one night we're out fly posting for a demonstration against student loans. It, it's a winter night and it's about two minutes away from the university and somebody shouts police and we run. So it was a bunch of us students. And when police would catch you, they'd confiscate your posters and give you a telling off. And uh, but this night, what they did was the police just chased me. Um, and when they caught, I could hear footsteps running behind me. And um, when they, as I ran across this grass verge behind a pub, and um, I heard footsteps and I felt the somebody grabbing me from behind and falling to the ground. But as I was grabbed, I said, "All right, I've stopped." And I fell to the ground, but I just felt myself being pushed to the ground and then my face being pulled back, my head being pulled back and slammed off the pavement and uh, my teeth crumbling, and then my head being pulled back again and being slammed off the ground, and then I passed out. And then when I came round, I was being dragged by a policeman and the policewoman back into the lane. And I was laid outside this bar in Ashton Lane, which was always quite busy with students and passers-by. It's only a few minutes away from university. And there was, when I came round, came conscious, I couldn't feel anything in the top row of my mouth. My mouth was bleeding. And at that point, having been brought up in Liverpool, I remember the memories of being brought up in Liverpool, of hearing about young black men dying in, the, in police vans. You know, we'd had the talks of riots. We knew about racism. 
Um, but yet I had been lucky not to actually ever have come into contact with her. But, I, you know, when people say um, that sort of, you know, your whole life flashes in front of you. And it literally felt like that. And I thought, what happens tonight? And just as that I came around, the first thought that actually went to my head was my mum. Because I used to ring my mum every night, right? And I'm an only son. And I thought, what's my mum going to say? But I remember crying. I was terrified. And I was looking up at the police officers and saying, why? And when I said the word why, the next thing I felt was what he said was, this is what happens to black boys with big mouths. And I was kicked in the face and the stuck. And I passed out. When I came round again, I was terrified. And I thought, either I die here tonight um, or I fight. And so I, all I could do was scream, why, why, why? And um, I was terrified. And some students who were passing by shouted they were going to get help. So the cops panicked, dumped me in a hospital, which was next door to the university, and left. Um, and I couldn't walk for about two, three weeks properly. I couldn't eat food. It's pulverized. I had, um, it took several years of treatment on my mouth to restore teeth and the damage that was done. But I became a very radical campaigner, a very angry young man at that point, anti-racist campaigner, became quite prominent. And then some four and a half years later, after something like 25 attempted arrests, five court trials against me, being regularly picked out by the police, um, I won my case against the police and became the only black or Asian person in Scotland ever to win a case against the police for a racist attack. And it was at that point in 95, I decided, I think I'll go back to university and study law. And, and that's, that set me on the path for, for becoming a lawyer. And then since then, the cases that I've been involved with have been extremely high profile. You know, they've involved deaths in custody. There's been the racist murder of Sergei Singh Choker. Um, I'm presently engaged in the Lockerbie appeal, the posthumous appeal for the Pan Am Flight 103 um, where over uh, several hundred people were killed over Lockerbie some 32 years ago um, and, and numerous other cases over the years, but usually ones that involve campaigning and, and standing up for the community. And also presently at the moment dealing with a case of what's been called um, um, equivalent to the, the choker um, case in terms of it's a death of a black person in police custody some five years ago and the family, like the choker family, were forced to set up a campaign simply to get justice and we're waiting for the start of a public inquiry into that. And beyond that, in terms of if you're asking who who Hammer Hammer is, I'm a father. Um, I have three young children, one age 13, a boy age 13, and two girls age nine and six. So my spare time is pretty much devoted to devoted to them as much as I as much as I can do. Um, but but in my heart, I've remained a campaigner, a justice campaigner, and believe that that you know equality is not a dream. Many people said to me, and obviously I'll tell you the story, Choker. But I remember at the start of the Choker case. Um, back in 1999, when I became involved, people said to me, "It's impossible. You can't take the system on, and you can you can't take the system on and win. You know the system is racist. You'll never win." But I reminded them of in November 1991, when I was a young man, 20 or 21 years old. I was told by my lawyers when I said I wanted to take the police on and fight them. They said nobody has ever won, and I said just because nobody has ever won doesn't mean somebody can't win. And it took me four and a half years and it took brutality, it took racism, it took being locked up in various nights in police cells and being told to give up and walk away till eventually I did win. And I thought, well, I was that one person who did manage to do it. And bizarrely enough, I'm still the only person in Scotland that's ever won a case against them, you know, for a racist attack. But I always believe fundamentally that if you fight for justice and keep fighting and keep fighting, then there is always a chance that you will get it. That's an amazing and inspiring introduction. So thanks so much for sharing that. And I felt the same way when I first came across your profile while I was digging away at the archives of the Institute of Race Relations, in particular, 
when I was looking through the many issues of the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism newsletter. And that's where I discovered the Shoka case and subsequently your campaign with the family to achieve justice. Could you please share with us more about that from the case facts and more generally the timeline of events? Well, Sajid Singh Choka was the only son of Darshan Singh Choka and Gurdiv Kaur. And they came up from London, um, Southall, I believe, and made Scotland their home in the 1980s. And then on the 4th of November 1998, Sajid, at the age of 32, a father of two young children, returned home late at night to Overton in Wishaw. He was attacked by three men, Ronnie Coulter, Andrew Coulter and David Montgomery, and he was repeatedly stabbed with a knife, hit with a lead-filled baton, and then brutally murdered in a racist attack, albeit that for some 18, until 18 years later, um, it took to, 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 for that case to be described as a racist murder. Three men were arrested that night and the family were told not to worry, justice would be done. And yet then the family became concerned because within two days, um, within a few days, two of the men were back out in the streets and were boasting about having killed a packet. And the, the family tried to speak to the police and they were told everything was in the hand and told to go away. And then the months went by. So Sajid's killed, you know, 4th of November 1998, and then neither the police nor the Crown Prosecution contacted the family to tell them when the trial was starting. And then um, a local, local Asian councillor, Bob Chadder, on the night of the murder, was warned by the police not to speak to the community as they didn't want race mentioned. And then one day before the trial started in Glasgow, a customer brought the, uh, a paper to the family shop and said, have you seen this? this is this not your son's killers? Killer to stand trial. So the family were shocked, went along to the court, and they didn't speak very much English, but their daughter Manji was with them who spoke English, and the police tried to turn them away, but they insisted, and they went to the courtroom. And they then sat down in the courtroom, and nobody had the decency um, or respect for the family whose son has been murdered to actually come up and speak to them. There was no interpreter in court. Nobody came up to tell them what was happening. They sat in the court for some two weeks watching this trial, and they saw the one man in front of them, a man called Ronnie Coulter. And... Um, he stood trial on the 2nd of March, 1999, which was incidentally a week after the Stephen Lawrence inquiry had come out in England and in Scotland, we were saying there's no problems with race. And what he did was he incriminated two other men, Andrew Coulter and David Montgomery, and the jury found him not guilty of murder. Now, during this period, what happened was um, the family thought that maybe there's trials going on in three separate courtrooms. There's nobody explained to them what was going on. And he walked free from the courtroom and he... Um, he was found not guilty of murder, he was found guilty of assault, and he, he was let free, walked out the courtroom, and subsequently he boasted to his family of having committed the perfect murder and of having stabbed a black bastard. And he actually got a tattoo of the devil's advocate done on his back. Um, and, then, and so when the not guilty verdict was announced, the family sat in the public gallery. You know, they were asked to leave by the court police. They were not spoken to, they were not given an explanation um, by the, the, the Crown Prosecution in the days that followed, or by, even by the police. And after the verdict, the trial judge, Lord McCuskey, who was a very uh, well-known, robust judge, um, who I had a great deal of respect for, addressed the jury in these terms. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, a young man was murdered in a public street uh, by one or more persons whose identities have been freely discussed in this case. For the reasons I cannot begin to understand, only one of those persons was placed in the dock and charged with crime. And that's a matter which, to me, as a, ma a judge of considerable experience, passes my understanding altogether. I cannot begin to understand how it happened, and I shall be taking steps to see if I can discover what the reasons were. 
Um, and he then, you know, he was astonished. It led to a blazing row between the head prosecutor, who was the Lord Advocate at the time, and Lord McCluskey. And it came, I was at home in Liverpool at the time with my mum watching the TV. And this came up and somebody started contacting me um, about this almighty row that had broken up. And people from the trade union movement who I'd worked closely with, you know, in anti-racism over the years, contacted me and said, Amor, have you seen what's going on here? Um, and at that time, I, I, I was close friends with um, Imran Khan, who was the lawyer, the solicitor for the Stephen Lawrence campaign. And um, one of the first things I did was speak to Imran because I came back up to Glasgow to try and meet the family. And, um, and we, we, I met with the family. I went to the Gurdwara. Because I said, where do I find this family? Because I wanted to offer my help. And I went to the Gurdwara. And of course, you know, I met Manjeet, the the daughter, who was naturally sort of, you know, um, suspicious, asking what I can do. And I said, I want to help. Let me please speak to your mom and dad. So that night we met in their house with the family. And um, within something like, you know, 48 hours of Ronnie Coulter walking free, we began the launch of the Choker Family Justice Campaign. And I remember that day, and I call her auntie, um, you know, Gurdev Kaur, the mother of Sajit Singh Choker. And auntie asked me the question, she says, son, how long will this take? And I still remember that night sitting in that house and saying six months to a year. I didn't know how long that journey for justice, that battle for justice would take. And then we began a highly politicized public campaign involving the trade union movement, all the political parties. We had the support of Neville and Doreen Lawrence, you know, um, and, um, and and so began the campaign to get a second trial for the other two men to be brought to court. So basically then in, in July 1999, um, 2nd of July 1999, the two other men, the other two accused, Andrew Coulter, David Montgomery, were brought to, to court and they were served with indictment, charging them with the murder of Sergi. And, um, and what happens is then, you know, we go to court then... Then what happens is we they, they go to court and they do the same thing. They blame the first one, Ronnie Colton, say, we didn't do it, he did it. So, of course, they also walk free from a courtroom. And um, it was devastating because we had fought for nearly a year and a half, two years, to get these men to trial and they walk free from the courtroom. And now for any parent, you know, the loss of a child shatters the soul. But no one can imagine the devastating toil wreaked by having to campaign in the midst of your grief. You know, Sajid came to be known as Scotland's Stephen Lawrence. Uh, and, and of course, as a young lawyer, I stood shoulder to shoulder with the Choker family as they mobilized thousands, you know, across the United Kingdom, speaking at massive meetings in London, you know, in Northern Ireland, on May Day, you know, up to, up to Aberdeen, you know, down south. But political meeting after political meeting, we were asking for a public inquiry. We wanted justice. But when those two men walked free at that time, we thought, Justice is never going to be done because at that time you couldn't be re-prosecuted. There was no double jeopardy, you know. Um, and um, we we then called for a public inquiry. And then what they did was they decided not to have a public inquiry, you know, and launched two private inquiries. And of course, for about several months, the family fought tooth and nail um, to ask for a public inquiry because the argument that we gave at the time was, imagine having a Stephen Lawrence inquiry where Neville and Doreen Lawrence never cooperated, their lawyers never cooperated and that, that Stephen Lawrence inquiry was held in private where key people such as police officers, investigating officers, chief commissioners, all these people were allowed to come and give evidence completely in private. It would be a whitewash 
And that's what we knew was going to happen with this inquiry. So we walked off, we boycotted the inquiry, and we called it, branded it a whitewash, which it certainly was. Um, and of course, at the, at the time of the second trial, when I came out on the steps of the court with, with, with the family standing next to me, I, I stood on the steps of the Glasgow High Court and accused our justice system of acting like a gentleman's colonial club, because that's what Mr. Choker said. He reminded him of the days of the Raj, of what the British would have treated our families like. And he said, and I said on their behalf, it acted like a gentleman's colonial club, arrogant, unaccountable, institutionally racist, with one law for the rich and a very different one for black people and the poor. Um, and of course, the inquiries were lodged. They were a whitewash and they broke the heart of the family. You know, um, you know, they set up two inquiries. They, they, they put in the token black man, as we would say, Dr. Raj Jandu, Scotland's first Asian advocate who was asked to examine the family's treatment and the issue of racism. And what it did do, you know, 2001, after several months, the family walked out and boycotted the inquiries. And so did the whole black Asian minority ethnic community in Scotland. Um, and the inquiry eventually was published. It was an attack after attack on the family, on my role, you know, as though somehow we were responsible for, for prosecuting, but it allowed all those individuals to speak up. But what it did were, was that it did say that there was institutional racism. For the very first time, it was accepted that there was institutional racism, you know, within the police and the way that the, the, the family had been dealt with in Scotland. Uh, now, you know, what happened then was um, the family, of course, were pushing to try and, you know, get a public inquiry. The heart went out of it because Mr. Choker by that time had, you know, um, developed cancer, you know, um, potential perjury was promised to the family against Ronnie Coulter for lying. You know, he had gone and boasted to his sister about stabbing a black bastard and getting away with it. Um, and, you know, you know, the family went through so much torture and heartwork that eventually about a year or two years later, the campaign was wound up and it was closed because Mr. Choker was so ill and we thought we're reaching a dead end. And then what happened is many years later go by. I become, you know, a, a lawyer, I'm practicing, you know, I, it was 2000, 1998 was a murder. I was a law student at the time when I took on the case. By 2000, I had started practicing as a lawyer. And by 2001, 2002, when we folded up the campaign, you know, I was a qualified lawyer. So many years go by and the family had lost hope. And, um, you know, in England, what happened was, um, you know, the same thing had happened with the Stephen Lawrence family. And then the Labour government brought in double jeopardy legislation in England. And I was advised by Imran Khan, who worked for the Stephen Lawrence family, says, I'm phoning me up and says, have you seen what's happening in England? We're going to go for the Lawrence killers, Stephen's killers again. You need to push for that to happen in Scotland. So what happened at that time was the SNP were administration in Scotland, um, had won the first government. And I went to them and approached them about changing the law. And they decided to change the law, bring in double jeopardy, which basically means that if you get new evidence, you can bring it back to court. If the Crown haven't made a mistake, the police haven't made a mistake, but you find new evidence years later, for instance, DNA or eyewitness evidence, you can bring that back to court and prosecute that person again for if they've come to court and they've got away with it. So following that change in law, once we had it and it was passed into legislation, I obviously had been speaking to Manjit, their daughter. Mr. Choker had been very ill, extremely ill over the years that had passed by each time he was being told, you know, it was, he, he was going to die. And we went to see her mother and father to convince them to allow us to begin that campaign again. And, um, and in the first instance, many assumed that the family just jumped at it and said, no, you know, great, let's go for it. But of course he didn't. He was seriously ill with cancer. He was dying. And what he said to me was he couldn't bear any more lies. He couldn't bear any more false promises in his dying days. 
And I've always described Mr. Choker as a proud old warrior, right? Because people always talked about the dignity and the courage of Mr. and Mrs. Choker. And I say, this is a man whose family gave their lifeblood to the British. You know, Mrs. Choker's, you know, grandfather won the Victoria Cross. You know, Mr. Choker had a rich history of people being members of the British Army. Mr. Choker himself was in the Indian Army, you know, was in the United Nations, came to the UK, thought he would join the police, but because of his English, he couldn't do so. So he said to me, he always said to me over those years, that British justice in South, you know, went through his blood, right? And he was shattered. But everything he was brought up to believe was a lie. So he said to me he couldn't do anymore and he couldn't campaign and he couldn't stand shoulder to shoulder and he couldn't go to meeting after meeting. And then I remember saying to him, and I was in tears at this meeting, as was Manji. And I broke down and I said, uncle, please give me a chance. Give me one last chance and I promise you that we will get you justice. Do not let this man or these men walk away. So eventually he agreed. And myself and Manji went and saw the Lord Advocate, who's Scotland's most senior prosecutor, to reopen the case and... Um, and so they reopened the case. Um, 2014, we started to prepare for a new trial because of the legislation. It's very tightly controlled. And it means you have to have significant new evidence. So we thought we had significant new evidence enough for two of the three killers. But unfortunately, the court decided only one of them was significant enough to allow to go against trial. So in 2014, we started to prepare for a new trial. And in 2015, the senior prosecutor in the trial and the Lord Advocate, along with myself, went to see Mr. Choker in the house because they wanted to see him because he was so ill and we didn't know how long he was going to survive. And then in October 2015, sadly, Mr. Choker passed away. And I think it's testimony to the man, I gave the eulogy at his funeral, that at his funeral, you know, um, some, what, 1998, his son died, 2000, the family were attacked, you know, they were stigmatised, they were ridiculed. You know, but they stood up and fought. They fought for justice, not just for their son, but they also fought for justice for everybody else and equality. And, you know, the fact, it was testimony to this man that at his funeral, there was police outback riders, that the justice minister attended, you know, that government ministers attended, the chief constable attended, and people paid, you know, tribute to this family, you know, that they went down in history as a family had done so good. And the choke of, and, you know... Uh, and I've, I've often said this, and I said this at the time as well of the funeral, um, that Sajid Singh Choker, like, you know, was neither a rich or a powerful man, uh, but he was a loving son. He was a father. He was a brother who was lucky to have two stubborn parents who refused to be silenced, you know. And the Choker family and Mr. Choker have symbolized for me more than anyone in my lifetime, you know, what justice should be about. It's not about the vanity of law. It's not a gentleman's club, but they were a humble family who demanded justice as a right and not a privilege. And, you know, it was sad to carry Mr. Choker's coffin. You know, it was sad to have that heartbreak and know that he would never see justice because until his dying breath, he said, I want insaf. Give me it. I want it for my son so I can go to my death in peace. And um, the, eventually, in a year later, in October 2016, the trial began at Glasgow High Court in exactly the same place where the Previous two trials had taken place, and myself and Manji and um, um, Auntie Mrs. Gurdev Kaur went to the trial along with their family, their children who had grown, you know, older um, and were adults now. And we sat in that courtroom. And we sat in that courtroom for two weeks. 
And I remember as we came to the end of the two weeks, the panic I felt, the terror I felt as I held Auntie's hand and Manji's hand and the verdict came out. And he was asked to stand and the jury read out the verdict and the verdict was one of guilty, of murder. And we broke down and you can hear from my voice that I still break down when I remember that point because it was relief that finally after 18 years, after devastation, that justice had finally been done. And Auntie turned around to me and said, you know, finally I can be at peace, that I can smile, that I can feel comfort, that I have done what a mother would do for her child, for her husband, and I can, I, I, and my, my husband and my son will be at peace. And for the very first time, 18 years later, you know, the Crown and the police confirmed it was a racist murder. They publicly thanked the family and I for campaigning to bring about justice. Um, and, and, and so, you know, that hope for justice never died. You know, um, the family fought tooth and nail you know, there wouldn't have been those inquiries. There wouldn't have been recognition of racism. I, I, but that battle still continues. But for me, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you wanted to speak to me for the Sikh archive because I'm very conscious of the fact that this is part of our history. And it's a story that hasn't really been told, sadly. You know, mainstream media never really took it up. It did in Scotland, but across the United Kingdom, across the world, they didn't take it on because I, for one, see Mr. and Mrs. Choker continuing that tradition of which the Sikh community can be extremely proud of fighting for justice. You know, um, it's been, I mean, people have always asked me because um, I used to go to the Gurdwara with Mr. and Mrs. Choka literally every Sunday for a number of years, asking for the community to provide support. You know, I became that sort of rabble rouse and they went, oh, oh, here he comes again, just let him speak to the community. And I remember people in our community, not just the Sikh community, but the Hindu community, the Pakistani community, always turned around to me and said, Potter ki but, you know, you're just, you're just carrying on for no reason. Nothing's going to happen. Just give up. And I went, if it was your son, what would you do? Would you give up the fight? Would you go to your grave and then tell your son when you see him that you didn't stand up and fight for him? Was his life so cheap that you would let his killers walk away? But that life wasn't cheap. Sajid's life wasn't cheap. And it was a message to everybody out there, including the police and the Crown Office and all the rest of these institutions that stand up there in their vanity of wigs and gowns and tell us that they know best. They didn't. And it took an ordinary, humble family to fight 18 years to bring about that and to make history. And I think it is, I think it's incumbent upon the Sikh community to celebrate their heroes, their heroines, and actually recognize what Mr. and Mrs. Choker actually mean. It's very convenient when things are passed and people move on. They go, like, let's forget about that. I think that they should be there. There's enough archive footage. There's enough TV footage. There's enough there to, you know, for, for, the, for that to be memory. Because for our younger generation, they should know. Sometimes our younger generation who I talk to as a lawyer now, because I can't regard myself as young. I was young when I started the campaign. You know, I'm 53 years old now. And I say to young people, they're always quite dismissive of our older generation. I always say to them, I remember an old man and an old woman who weren't young, who didn't have the spirit and all that rest of it, but they had spirit in their heart. And they were aged and they, one of them was dying and they never gave up the fight. They stood back, they stood up, they fought back against racism. What are we asking you to do? Not very much at all. You know, so for, the, for me, as I say that, they sum up for me very much what justice should be about. Mr. and Mrs. Choker, Darshan Singh Choker, Gurdiv Kaur. Again, that's uh, really, really inspiring. And uh, I think this is why I believe this interview is so important and uh, this podcast, because 
you know, you can't really capture the essence of the things you're saying in many of the court judgments or archival news material throughout the family campaign for justice. And and so that's why I think, you know, hearing it directly from you really allows those points to hit home. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, um, Mr. Grouch, I'm just looking at the words of Mr. Choker on the screen in front of me and I want to read them to you. And these were words that were read out by me on behalf of Mrs. Choker, who really spoke about the couple of occasions she spoke, because people were patronising. They assumed, you know, Asian woman with the debutte on, quiet, you know, oh, she's quiet. But she was the powerhouse at the heart of this campaign. You know, she was the one who pushed Mr. Choker. She was the one who stood and went, no, we will fight. I am not giving up. And a couple of times she spoke her words, you know, for anyone who's a parent, had such resonance. And this was like 21st of May, 2001, when we walked out of the public session of the inquiry and the family boycotted the inquiry. And these were her words. I no longer have a life. All I hear are my son's cries for help in my sleep or in my dreams. I cry for my only son I have lost because I can never hold him again and tell him how much I loved him. I have cried so much that at times there are no more tears. We never asked you people for much, just justice to know that you could bring my son's killers to account for their crime. That will never happen now. And now with these inquiries, what you have done other than protect the people who failed us. The love between a mother and son is strong. My darling son may be gone, but my love for him will give me the strength to continue fighting for the truth, not your lies. And that was just some two and a half years after her son was murdered. But testimony to Gurdiv Kaur, you know, she fought. And she fought for all mothers out there you know, have lost their children. Um, and and it, it demonstrated, you know, that never give up. You know, um, I, I think it's like, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. Never, ever give up. And she didn't give up. Can I just ask you uh, a quick question for some legal clarity? Um, what is the difference between appealing the ruling and trying to establish double jeopardy? Because I believe the initial case went to the High Court. So could it have been appealed? Basically, it's a case of if you're acquitted of murder previously, that's it, you're acquitted of murder. The Crown isn't allowed to appeal it. So that's the end of the case. Um, and that would be it. So if you got if you bit got, got away with murder, you got away with murder and that was it. You couldn't be retried again, especially on the basis if the police and the Crown had made a mistake. Double jeopardy was brought in in light of advances in science, etc. People for years have said, let's say, for instance, you know, you commit a murder. But there's no CCTV. But the many years pass and you walk free from a court. Many years pass by and then all of a sudden CCTV is brought in. That shows you openly, you know, attacking someone with a gun or a knife and it puts you at the scene and it says, you know, proves that what you did was lie. Then you would be brought to court again and retried or if there was DNA evidence, etc. But the hurdles that they, the, the tests that they set are extremely high. So it cannot be the case of the police being allowed to simply re-prosecute you again and again until they get the result right, you know, wrong. It's a case of significant new evidence. And in this case, the significant new evidence was eyewitnesses that had come forward this time and also included the evidence of Ronnie Coulter's sister who came forward because it was Ronnie Coulter that was sent to prison for life. And I think I'd missed that out in the previous thing. It was Ronnie Coulter that was prosecuted. He's now doing a life sentence, you know, um, and it was, you know, people who'd come forward and said that he boasted about, you know, um, killing a black bastard, but there was new eyewitness evidence that came forward. Um, so that's, that's the difference. And that, that's why that law was so significant. 
one of the misconceptions uh, that can be read into the case is that the killing itself was not racist and that it was just over a dispute, over a check worth £100 or so. Would that be correct to say? No, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case because um, it, was, it was accepted 18 years later that there was racial motivation involved in this. And um, we should remember that Sajid was the only Asian living in that area at the time. He was the only Asian in that tower block. He was going to his girlfriend's house. He was the only Asian in that tower block. His house was robbed. Nothing was done about it. So whilst the police like to portray it as, and, and also the racial part of it is a case of, why were the police so interested in running along to the local Asian council and saying, don't speak about this publicly? Telling the family not to speak to anyone, not to contact anyone, right? Because they were worried about the, the whole connotations of race. And um, it was open to us. I mean, the family just knew it straight away. They went, hang on a second. You know, he's the only Asian guy and he's been stabbed to death. You know, if you're going to rob his, rob his gyro, then you rob his gyro, right? You don't then come back and kill him later on at night when he's going out with, you know, his girlfriend and his wife living in the local community. So, I mean, it was accepted. And also the actions of these individuals after the event, they were going around boasting in the local community. They were using racial, you know, insults to describe Sajid. And also the fact that what the man who was eventually convicted of murder actually said, you know, accepted in a courtroom that this is what he said. So to, to the family, to the wider community, it was racist. But of course, the police and the authorities tried to remain in denial for a number of years. Are there other racialized dimensions to this case study? For example, I know you've spoken about the court proceedings and the mistreatment of the parents, but did, say, the police, for example, did they surveil the family campaign for justice? No, there was. they didn't really need to do surveillance because we were open, public, you know, meeting after meeting, and I'm sure that police officers were present. But, I mean, I think in terms of the word racism and institutional racism, you know, flowed from the moment that Sajid dies you know, to, to the years that passed by in, in terms of the treatment and the liaison of the family, very much similar in the way that the Lawrence family was treated. You know, as soon as the family appoint, you know, someone to become their advocate, i.e. myself, to advocate on their behalf, it becomes a scene as, oh, you know, they just wanted a family that just nodded along and didn't understand what they were saying. You know, the fact that, you know, they try to, often what happens is racist or racist institutions try and portray it as incompetence. Right, so it's either incompetence or the other phrase is a few bad apples, which we see Cressida Decker, you know, the Metropolitan Police likes to use, you know, the idea of we're not institutionally racist. And the reason why they don't want institutional racism is because it means that, as whether it be you, I, I know for myself, I couldn't give a damn if someone's racist in that. I couldn't give a damn if they hate me because of their color of skin, as long as they're not able to apply that in practice in their workplace or on the street. That is when I want protection. That is when I think I have a right to defense within law. But when you put the racist killers to the side and deal with how the family are treated, you know, in every step of the way, you're supposed to, you know, they talk about justice system being equal and being blind. Well, they were blind because they didn't even actually recognize this family couldn't speak English. They were blind because they never even recognized that the color of the skin actually should be an issue that should have been considered. The inquiries themselves actually turned around and said, you know, that they never considered racial motivation. That was the country's most senior High, High Court Prosecutor, Lord Advocate, said that in Parliament. And it took until 18 years later to recognise that. And it had made an impact because it was almost as though, one, you lose your son and then you call liars because you believe it's racist murder. And you have to wait three trials later, two inquiries later, a change in the law before you can actually justify your existence. And, and, and we heard the words institutional racism, 
unwitting racism. There was nothing unwitting. That's the phrase of Sir William McPherson. Nothing unwitting about the treatment of this family. You know, their procedures, they had their guidelines, but all they could see was the color of the skin. You know, their inability to speak English. And I, I despair at times because I still watch institutions. I watch police officers and others and lawyers at a time. But when a person comes in and they don't speak English, they treat them as idiots, right? They treat them as though they are children. Not realizing, of course, that sometimes there'll be somebody who's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s standing in front of them as though their lifetime hasn't mattered, their life experience hasn't mattered, as though because you speak Punjabi, you must be a child, you must be an idiot spoken down to, not realizing the rich tradition that exists behind that voice that speaks in a different language, you know, behind the beard, behind the turban, treating them with no dignity, not looking at the courage that they have to stand up there despite losing their child. Uh, and uh, and it was we were conscious through all those years that the the crown strategy was to get a verdict of incompetence, um, and they didn't succeed because we exposed them for what they had done, and that terrified them, and it can, continues to terrify them because time and time again, no matter what inquiries we have, each time they come out, they issue their abject apology and you know uh, pay credit and tribute to um, you know the family's courage, dignity, and perseverance. I'm tired of hearing those words. All these families, all they ever want is just justice and respect, and to be treated with dignity. That's it. Um, and so for me, racism flowed through the whole case. What has this case meant for the community in Scotland? Also, you know, not just for Scotland, but beyond that, say in the UK or the Sikh community abroad, because I don't think it is that well known, despite being such a monumental case. So I wanted to ask you, in addition to that, why do you think that is? And how do you think the community should approach this now? I think it's all become folklore. Some people know about it. Some people don't know about it. Um, it was almost a case because it wasn't London-centric. You know, it was difficult getting it into the media. It's always the case. We managed to get it in the media in Scotland, but even then, I think probably some of the elders within the community, the elders, and I don't mean no disrespect, but Mr. Choker um, and Mrs. Choker were angry at the time because they felt almost as though some of the elders in the community didn't want to rock the boat. You know, they were old school type community gatekeepers who just thought, don't rock the boat, don't criticize the police, don't do this. So they didn't really want to get involved because they saw it as trouble, right? Which meant that the onus really was, and I say this, you know, the onus really was on the family starting a campaign that meant that trade you know when people ever say to me and you know my, I've had arguments from my own parents over a number of years and say oh you know what, what are the gore going to do and I say well do you know what <laughs> respect because they stood in their thousands next to Mr and Mrs Joker in their thousands the trade union movement black white you know different sexuality you know people from all walks of life you know they they saw it as an issue of justice and um, didn't shy away from it um, yet the community elders didn't, you know, they, they held back and they came along in the initial thing. But then after that, they didn't really want to know. And that, that is shameful. Um, and sadly, it's something that happens in our communities time and time again. This is not just something that's unique to the Joker case. In fact, in many other cases where, you know, community elders, you know, and I talk about the subcontinent wildly, you know, widely in terms of India, Pakistan, you know, Bangladesh, our community elders still like to be that sort of old school 70s, 80s style of Uncle G's who, you know, um, who won't rock the boat. Times have moved on. You know, we are fourth, fifth generation now we're talking about in this country. We're not willing to be slapped in the face. We're not willing to be spat on. We're not willing to be abused. Our children, our young people will stand up and will defend themselves. They have a right to self-defense. 
you know um, we and and also those those individuals I think shouldn't forget the rich tradition and history of our community you know the South Hall riots very rare that you will hear about the, the, the Sikh community, the Asian community, getting onto the streets of Southall to demonstrate against the National Front and driving them off the streets in, you know, in, 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 in the late 70s or the early 80s. And the thousands they went on the streets, you know, the Newham riots, where we actually, black and white, Asian, united on the streets, 20, 30,000, drove the National Front off the streets, the anti-Nazi league. That story is never told. And it's not just a case of you know, there are actually leaders within our community who were part of that tradition, part of that fight. And for some reason, their voices are silent. You know, there are many people, for instance, within the Sikh community who are involved in the anti-Nazi league. You know, were involved, you know, in the, in the South Hall monitoring project and, and groups like that were actually led the charge. I mean, I remember when I came across this case, I looked to the traditions of the South Hall monitoring project. I looked to individuals to like, oh, how, guide me, what do we do? Because we had nothing up here to actually compare and contrast it to. And is you know these stories need to be brought back out again, need to be told to our younger community because the reason why is things to a certain extent are going backwards, and if we don't learn the lessons of our history of how to fight, then we will lose the next battles that come, and we have big battles ahead. I think you are one hundred percent right there, and I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think there is such a complex from the community, one which wants to conform to this model minority narrative that does not want to rock the boat and, you know, just go about their lives and pay their taxes, I guess. I also wanted to ask you more about the level of solidarity you were receiving from across the nation, because I found your name, you know, surfaced countless times across the archives of the campaigns against racism and fascism, the institution of race relations and just so many more. So, I mean, it was huge. I mean, the support, I always see that as a textbook way of conducting campaigns in the years that have, subsequent years that have passed. Uh, in terms of the first people that we turned to were the Stephen Lawrence lawyers, family lawyers, you know, Imran Khan, Michael Mansfield, and there was Neville and Doreen Lawrence. But the very, the first people I actually spoke to to give support was the Scottish TUC, the trade union movement, who were, became the, the, the heart of this campaign. We set up our office in the Fire Brigades Union, in 52 St. Enoch Square, I have lots of fond memories because they gave us a room. They gave us their photocopying. We took over that whole office and they were there left, right and centre, you know, through the whole campaign. Thousands of firefighters across the country, you know, supported us. You know, the, the Black Workers Committee of the STUC, Unison, the EIS, the Teachings Teachers Union, you know, so many trade unions, so many, to, to uh, you know, PCS, all these huge trade unions who crossed the country backed this campaign without which... We couldn't have done this because we needed to keep going. You know, I was in the midst of my studies. I became a lawyer. We had no funding. We had no money. You know, we didn't get money from anyone to do it. It was allowed us to travel, to speak, and to galvanize a campaign, which meant from start to finish, they were at the heart of this. They always were. Um, and it meant that when the institution looked at you, they realized they weren't just looking at, you know, a mother and a father and a young law student who's at the end of his law degree maybe starting become maybe become a lawyer and think, oh, is that all we've got to deal with? No, they're actually dealing with the institutions of this country. So they were dealing with the, you know, the anti-racist organizations that came on board, the trade union movement, the political parties. We managed to galvanize all the political parties in Scotland to support the demands of the Choker family for justice. We demanded a public inquiry at the last moment the Labour government that were in power at the time with the Liberal Democrats refused a public inquiry 
and gave us the whitewash of the judicial inquiries. But prior to that, of course, all the political parties supported the family in their, in their, in, in their, in their fight and campaign for justice. Today, when I look at, for instance, the SNP, half the cabinet um, of the Scottish government, were actually, when they were in opposition, MSPs, members of the Scottish Parliament, were actually supporters of the Choker campaign, used to come along you know, and, and stand at vigils and support and write letters and demands and all that. So we had a wide and varied movement. You know, it was black, it was white, it was gay, it was straight, it was Chinese. Um, you know, it, it, people from all walks of life came together. And every time the question would be asked by me, the family were like, why are they supporting us? And I'd say, why not? People often ask me about the firefighters. I'd say, well, how did the firefighters? And the firefighters always said to me, listen, son, when we climb through a window, to save someone's life, we don't look at whether they're black or they're white. We do our duty, right? Um, and, uh, and and it became that, you know, I always used to wonder what is unity is strength, the solidarity and is, you know, trade union slogan. I only became to understand what it actually truly meant um, once this campaign started. And I often say that to the trade union movement and especially to my brothers and sisters in the fire brigades union. We couldn't have done it without them. You know, we owe them a, a great debt that has never been repaid. Um, and I think it's time that our community also understood that each and every time that one of our brothers and sisters is attacked on the street and killed, that the people that always rise to the occasion in this country is the anti-racist movement, is the trade union movement at each and every level provides support because without that support, those families can't fight. So that's really, really inspiring. And uh, it truly is. I cannot agree more with what you're saying. So... What are the parallels we are seeing now with this new case you spoke about at the beginning? Because it seems like that's going to be another long family campaign for justice. Yeah, the new case is uh, is the case of Sheku Bayo. Um, again, he was, I think he was 32 years old on 3rd of May 2015. Uh, police received reports of a young black male walking down the street acting erratically with a knife. Um, several police vehicles were dispatched. The first six officers, your first four officers arrived in this on the scene within space of um, something like um, less than a minute, Shikubayo is brought to the ground. Um, he was restrained. He is ankle cuffed, leg cuffed. You know, um, the initial body weight on top of him is is over 50 stones. But when you add six officers on top of him, it increases, multiplies. He can't breathe. Um, he is restrained. Um, he suffers injuries, uh, multiple injuries, fractured rib. And he dies at the spot. And... Um, and for five years, the family fought for justice. They wanted an inquiry. They didn't understand why the police refused to give statements for 32 days. They um, urged the Lord Advocate to carry out a full-scale criminal investigation. They believed that was inadequate. They believed it was incompetent. They believe institutional racism exists and the family's fought for over five years now. So public inquiry is due to start because of COVID that's been sort of pulled back, but probably by next year, a full-scale public inquiry which would all take place into the death in custody of Shekubayo, and it will also consider whether race was a factor at the time of his death and subsequently after, but it will also look at the role of not just the police officers, but all the organisations, Police Scotland, the, the Crown Prosecution in this country, um, the role of the Scottish Police Federation, etc. Um, and so there's lots of parallels in, in the way that the family were spoken to, how they were lied, how they, the lack of justice, how they've had to set up a campaign in the midst of their grief simply to get answers. You know, a mother again, you know, whose only son is murdered, saying that until her dying breath, she will not give up fighting for justice. Now, this family knows that no police officers will ever face justice in a courtroom. They won't 
you know, because they've been cleared, because they've said there was no criminal um, investigation. But once that's done, that's the end of the matter. So it's a public inquiry to get to the truth with a view that the system in this country is wrong, it's unaccountable, it lacks transparency, and that nobody should have to fight the most powerful institution in this country that have the power of weapons, the use of weapons, the use of arrest. And the family have always said, if Sajid was doing something wrong, then fine. Sorry, so if, if, um, if Sheku was doing something wrong, then fine, arrest him. But any force used on him had to be reasonable, legitimate, proportionate. Within a minute, within a minute of him going to the ground, batons had been used upon him. CS spray, Pava spray. You know, when they met Sheku, uh, he was walking towards them, palms open, apparently, right? He didn't brandish a knife. No knife was ever found upon him. Yet he was face down on the ground with multiple officers on top of him and the family had a right to ask the questions as in what happened on that day. Why did he end up dead? Why did the actions of those police officers lead to his death? Those are questions that they're entitled to ask and ask openly and in public. And that's why, on one view, you know, the fact is that this time around the government has ordered a public inquiry because I did say to them, do not make the mistake of choker and organise a private or a judicial inquiry where people are not held to account in public. And this will help. And that choker family has a role to play in that because that was exactly one of the documents that I, when I provided to the Scottish government was an argument for a public inquiry. And to the Lord Advocate said, do not make the mistakes you made 20 years ago because we will never forgive you. We will not take part. And that was very firm. There was no compromise on that. But the very fact that once again, I have to refer back to Choker because that set the scene 20 years ago. You know, that, that actually set the scene of how we will proceed in every battle coming into the future. Thank you so much for that amazing conversation, Emma. I think as the years go on, it becomes more and more important to remember this case for future generations and how symbolic it was in the campaign for racial justice in the UK. And sadly, it's not so widely known, but uh, I think, you know, more needs to be done to preserve that memory. And I hope our conversation can contribute to that cause in some way by making this history accessible via this podcast. So thanks again for all your hard work and dedication, not just on the Shoker case, but also the countless others you've, you know, been a part of to this present day. And also thanks again, of course, to our generous Patreons that allow me to create these podcasts. So please do let me know which topics you'd like to hear next in the near future. And also I would like to thank our sponsor, Sikh Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media pages that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and making more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoy this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.